Hello, Drew Nation. This is Drew Allen, your Millennial Minister of Truth. I decided to do something a little bit different here today. Uh, I kind of want to release a a weekend episode, if you will. It's a little bit different than other things. It has a little bit less of the venom, a little bit less of... uh, of, uh, Well, it's a different angle, this episode. It's really meant to be just informative, almost like... You know, you were listening to uh, the subject of history to learn something this weekend. I know we do that with politics. But I came across this remarkable article written at Tablet Magazine, and it's by a biographer of Barack Obama. And all of this will tie into what's happening today with the establishment of this deep state, of what happened to Trump, of this really frightful moment in our history. And it does go back and originate with the Obama presidency. But first, it was today or yesterday, I think today, it's Barack Obama's birthday, and he decided to come out of the closet, don't you know? Well, he didn't actually come out of the closet himself. A biographer, this historian, his name is David Garrow, well, he just blew the lid on Obama's not-so-secretive hidden past. It's been speculated that Obama is a homosexual man. Uh, And anyway, I'll, I'll I'll get more into that in a moment. But David Samuels wrote this piece in which he interviewed Garrow, and it's published, as I said, at Tablet Magazine, and actually it came out a couple of days ago, and I'll link to this on the episode on my substack, drewallen.substack.com, but there are just bombshells in this thing. And it's just amazing that it's, what, it's 2023, which means it's been 15 years now since Obama was first elected president. And, and we knew he was a fraud, but nobody would uncover anything. It was a remarkable thing that happened with the Obama election. The lack of interest by the left-wing media. I mean, even more so than usual. It was crazy. You had this guy that we knew nothing about who came out of nowhere, and you had no journalist to be found that was interested in getting to the bottom of it. And of course, Obama had these autobiographies already written, or at least one was written at the time, Dreams, Dreams for My Father. And you could track down these people that he talked about in his book. You could actually interview them and find out if it was true. But of course, those autobiographies, they were were works of fiction. It's It's like Joe Biden. You know, before Joe Biden and what we see today and view today as a shell of a human being who just lies about his entire history and background, there's he's a sociopathic serial liar. Well, Obama is the exact same way, and he fictionalized his own history to be something that he's not, because like Biden, he's actually ashamed of his past. He's damaged by something in his past. There is a psychological discussion to be had here. And so Obama was allowed to essentially just cruise through the election and the campaign without ever even being really vetted at all. And of course, we found out a few things, things that should have been disqualifying, frankly, his church attendance at this racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-American church, which was led by the Reverend Wright. G-damn America. Not God bless America. G-damn America. Right? You remember that. And we knew at the time, too, that Obama was a racist himself. He had a grudge against white people. He didn't like Jews or Israel. That he hated America. I mean, why else would you attend a church for 20 years that preached that poison? Well, we know the answer. It's like the same thing with the Biden scandals going on right now. We know the answers. But Obama, like Biden thus far, simply got away with it. And and Obama, remember, he just said essentially just because he went to a church that preached it, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism, 
racism against white people. It didn't mean he believed it. Right, right. And Joe Biden just happened to get on the phone with at least 20 of Biden's foreign business associates to talk about the weather. Sure, sure, we buy that. But like then, we have no journalists interested in getting to the bottom of this because what we have is a symbiotic relationship that's really officially cemented now between the press, these social media tech companies as well, the FBI and intelligence community. They've all married themselves to the Democratic Party. That's what's happened here. They're not rogue elements anymore. They're officially working towards a singular purpose, and they're unified. So you had all these rogue elements that were anti-American, that had the same ideology, but it wasn't until Obama came along and, and throughout his presidency that they found leadership. They became organized. It was like all these rogue elements, like these kind of uh, guerrilla warfare, these tribes, if you will, all dedicated to the same thing, but not united, and so a little bit less dangerous because they weren't focused singularly on the same goal. And then Obama came along and he brought them together. And then, you know, of course, we knew something else about Obama, too, that was disqualifying, that he had deep ties, personal ties, to the domestic terrorist Bill Ayers and his wife Bernadine Dorn. These people were on the FBI, FBI's most wanted list at one point. They tried to bomb, you know, government property. I mean, these were terrible people that should have spent their whole lives in prison but they were let off the hook. They were let off the hook. They found a way to get them off the hook. And Obama wrote this off. I mean, remember, Obama's first campaign for state senator was launched in the home of Bill Ayers. And Bill Ayers, of course, hired Obama to work at one of his think tanks there in Chicago. So, of course, they had a close relationship. But Obama simply said, you know, he wasn't friends with heirs. It didn't mean anything. He was just a guy that Obama knew that lived in Obama's neighborhood. What a joke. And I, I do believe this. Obama would not have been elected in 2008 had McCain not decided to stop attacking Obama for his past. Do you remember what happened? McCain was actually killing Obama with this ad exposing all this, these ties to Bill Ayers and so on and so forth. And it was working. Actually, the polls were showing that McCain had a really good shot of beating Obama. Things were trending in the correct direction as we approached, I think it was around October, you know, the November election. And the media came out in a coordinated effort and they questioned John McCain's honor. And they found the Achilles heel of McCain, who cared very deeply about his honor and what people said about him. And in like one week, McCain sabotaged his own campaign. He started actually defending Obama. Started actually defending Obama. And as soon as he gave up on the attacks, showed weakness to Republicans, showed weakness to Democrats, well, it was all over. Because that was Obama's Achilles heel. Who is this guy? He's a radical. And once McCain stopped being the spokesperson exposing that, as he was uniquely qualified to do, having the megaphone of being the GOP presidential nominee in, in 08... Well, it was easy pickings for Obama after that because the media wasn't going to do that job. And as an aside, and I'll get to this in part two of the episode, I have not seen a campaign implode like McCain's until now. Until now. 
And I'm talking about the Ron DeSantis campaign. It's it's bewildering. It's head-scratching. But I'll get into that, as I said, in the second portion of the show. So I want to tell you the highlights of this piece about Obama. This historian, Garrow, he actually went and spoke to former girlfriends, people in Obama's adolescent or young adult life, the people who were most qualified to attest to the person and the character and to verify or corroborate these fictional stories told in Obama's own autobiography. So he interviews them. He asks them to corroborate these stories they're involved in, in Obama's own recount of his life. And he wrote this biography, and it's a comprehensive biography of Obama's early years. Now, it came out like in 2017. I I, I can't believe I didn't know about this book. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't have known about this. We're being distracted by Trump-Russia collusion and all of that. But, for example, in Dreams from My Father, Obama's first autobiography, he recounts this story of how he broke up with his longtime Chicago girlfriend named Sheila Miyoshi Yeager. And, you know, she has, you know, she's kind of a, a mutt here like most of us are, but she was white. And Obama says that their breakup in his book He says it followed this passionate disagreement following this play they went to see by this well-known African-American playwright named August Wilson. And Obama says it was this quarrel about Obama's self-identification as a black man. It was about, about this, whatever. You know, and this plays into his whole theme. You know, he found himself. He's black. That's how I, anyway. Well, it turns out this is all make-believe. It's not true. None of it's true. The ex-girlfriend told Garrow the argument didn't happen after the play. But actually, after an exhibit at Chicago's Spurtis Institute. So the, the circumstances of it, he lied about, and also the contents of the conversation. Now here I'll read you an excerpt from the book and from this article. At the time that Obama and Sheila visited the Spurtis Institute, Chicago politics was being roiled by a black mayoral aide named Steve Coakley who, in a series of lectures organized by Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, accused Jewish doctors in Chicago of infecting black babies with AIDS as part of a genocidal plot against African Americans. The episode highlighted a deep rift within the city's power echelons, with some prominent black officials supporting Coakley and others calling for his firing. In Yeager's recollection, that's the girlfriend, What set off the quarrel that precipitated the end of the couple's relationship was Obama's stubborn refusal after seeing the exhibit and in the swirl of this Coakley affair to condemn black racism. While acknowledging that Obama's embrace of a black identity had created some degree of distance between the couple, she insisted that what upset her that day was Obama's inability to condemn Coakley's comments. It wasn't Obama's blackness that bothered her. What bothered her was that he wouldn't condemn anti-Semitism. Obama was an anti-Semite. So you have these competing narratives. So whose account is more likely to be true? Obama, the serial liar without any integrity, or the ex-girlfriend? Now, this ex-girlfriend, to tell you about her, Obama asked her to marry him twice. She refused him both times. And she went on to achieve her own high-level professional success. Uh, She was a a student of the University of Chicago anthropologist Marshall Solins. 
Jaeger today, I believe, is a professor of East Asian Studies at Oberlin College. So she's well regarded. Now, importantly to this story, which gives her the most credibility, is that Jaeger herself, the anti-Semitism issue was deeply personal to her because Jaeger's paternal grandparents, Hendrik and uh, Gieschi Jaeger, I don't know how to pronounce it, they were members of the Dutch resistance, and they played a role, her family did, right? Her paternal grandparents played a role in sheltering a Jewish child in their home for three years, and it led to their recognition as righteous among the nations by Yad Vashem. So, I mean, this is like a Schindler's List situation. Um, these people were, were harboring a Jewish child to, to protect this individual. So, you know, that would be a memorable thing. You, you, she would know what set off this argument. But shockingly, of course, not a single reporter interviewed her in 2008 or afterwards when he ran for re-election. It's shocking, or maybe it's not shocking at all. And so this is probably, in my opinion, the, most, the single most credible source in ascertaining who Obama actually is. And this bio that I'm referring to, it's called Rising Star, came out six years ago, as I mentioned. And uh, this author, Garrow, he's written other important bios, one about the FBI and MLK Jr., really a brilliant guy. And he doesn't strike me as particularly political. I, I think he actually is a Democrat. Uh, but anyway, just he's a historian, somebody that rare today that believes in the integrity of a, a profession like journalists are supposed to. Now, something else that comes up, and I've written about this extensively, actually. <clears throat> it's been published. I've talked about it on my own show and on the radio. And uh, You know, Obama is still behind the scenes as the puppet master. He is running this Democrat Party and the White House. He's running the Biden administration. He never left D.C. That's the telltale sign, really. That should tell you a lot. In 2016, of course, he was briefed on Clinton's Trump-Russia collusion strategy by James uh, Brennan. CIA director. And so Obama had to participate as the outgoing president to keep the pieces in place. Clinton couldn't have done it without him. It was an inside job and she was outside. So he was integral to this coup attempt. And so you might say, okay, of course, you know, Trump was there. He was elected. Obama had to stick around. And he gave the excuse too, you know, he had to wait till Sasha graduated from high school. Well, now his kids are out of college. They're empty nesters. But even when Biden was installed in the White House in 2020, Obama didn't leave D.C. He still decided to stay there and spends a lot of most of his time there, as a matter of fact. And, and do you remember? We, I mean, it's, it's kind of like this Biden scandal. It's all in front of our faces. You just have to use your brain and put the pieces together. Remember a year or so ago? I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was the anniversary of, I think, Obamacare. And Biden had this big event. It was like a birthday party. And, of course, Obama, it was his first time back in the White House. And Biden called himself Obama's VP. It was self-deprecating. It wasn't funny. He was trying to be funny, but it was really sick and weak. And Obama made cracks about he's really the one in charge. And the whole room flocked to Obama. I mean, Biden was like scenery. He was like wallpaper or drapes in the room. He's just wandering around in, in, invisible in this room while everyone wants to shake Obama's hand and talk to Obama, who's not the president of the United States. Now, in this, in this piece, too, it talks about how Obama had, this, Obama had this toxic ambition. And this is, I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. I mean, as in my former career as an actor, as a screenwriter, too, a producer of movies, you know, I really get into this stuff uh, 
about psychology, who people are, right? Because I used to embody these characters. Some were real characters, even if they were those types of plays or, or films. And Obama, you know, he, he's got this toxic ambition. He is a narcissist. And it stems from these psychological wounds. And they're inflicted by what? His parents abandoning him. That's what happened. Remember, he had a white mother, black father. And he was raised by who? His white maternal grandparents in Hawaii. And this is when Obama became an absolute narcissist. And somehow, he simultaneously, because this is a person whose wounds, I mean, he didn't heal them. He didn't find God. He didn't find Christianity. He allowed them to fester. And when you do that and you don't fix it and heal, darkness takes over. And so he developed a deep contempt for the idea of American exceptionalism. He went to the dark side. It's like Luke Skywalker. Not Luke Skywalker, but it's like Darth Vader. Somebody who had all this promise. Did have certainly much talent. But instead of using it for good, he used it for evil. That's, that's essentially the Obama story. Obama was hostile towards Israel. I remember, he paved the way for Iran to attain a nuclear weapon. It made no sense. He was an ally himself of a terrorist nation that wished destruction and death upon America and Israel, our ally. And this is something that's remarkable to me, by the way, as an aside about the delusions of liberalism and progressivism as it relates to their belief in victimhood. Right? These anti-Semitic feelings that they proliferate in Democrats, in the Democrat Party, in certain communities. Unfortunately, for example, if you look at New York and the black community where they're attacking Hasidic Jews in the street. Well, these anti-Semitic feelings, they stem from this belief that these white Jews are privileged oppressors, right? They're some kind of elites. It's kind of like CRT. But think about this. Democrats say blacks are victims because of slavery. And yet they can't claim Jews who are what? They're victims of historic persecution, of slavery themselves, of ghettos, of concentration camps, which happened much more recently than slavery in the U.S. And yet somehow these progressives don't view these Jews who are historically persecuted as victims. They view them as oppressors. And yet, ironically too, Obama views himself as exceptional even while he doesn't view America as exceptional. But here's perhaps the most shocking revelation, if you just woke up today. This historian acquired these love letters written between Obama and his girlfriends. And Barack Obama wrote to one of his girlfriends that he repeatedly fantasizes about making love to men. Now remember, one of Obama's great tutors, I think when he was in Hawaii, was a pedophile. So these are the people that Barack Obama was around. I'm not conflating being gay with being a pedophile, but I'm just saying this individual was also a pedophile. So he's got these things in him, these feelings, these fantasies. And it's noted that these these letters, by the way, they're performative. And what I mean by performative is it's like reading a sociopath writing a letter. They're poorly written and they, they lack any genuine human interest is what the historian and this interviewer uh, remark after looking at them. And the reason is because the historian says he believes that, well, he knows that Obama has these journals because he would actually go and visit Obama to talk about the biography. And Obama had these journals and kept them in front of him. 
teasing him. And the historian believes the letters are derived from journal entries, which is why they're so lacking in any, any real human emotion, human connection, right? Because they're journal entries. They're not personal. They're your own thoughts, which are pretty dry most of the time. They're not super emotional. And so if he just adapted these and gave it to the girl, there's nothing behind it. It's performative. And he says that Obama wouldn't let him see any of these journals, and Obama will never let anyone see any of these journals, which is bizarre. Unless you're hiding something, of course. And, you know, Obama, you know, he's not a great feminist. I think he's a woman hater, to be truthful with you. He essentially omitted the women from his life in the book. This did bother uh, some of the women. And he acts as if they had no influence. And I do believe, if you look at Obama's background, if you look at other people out there who have mother issues, right, they're abandoned by their mothers, they hate women, sometimes they become... I'm, I'm serious here. I, I, just hear me out, you know. But you have these serial killers out there, like a Jeffrey Dahmer type or something like that. And these people hate women. And why do they hate women? Because they have mommy issues at a young age. And Obama certainly had mommy issues. And that would explain maybe his desire to be with men instead of women because he doesn't really like women. And if you think about the performative act and the fraudulent identity that he has, Michelle Obama, it makes sense that she would be a beard. She would be a beard. So, I mean, this is pretty shocking. I mean, imagine if... You know, imagine if, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's crazy. I talk about these letters, right? It's so clear. Okay, well, should someone ask Obama about that? So you used to fantasize about men. What happened to that? Is that still with you? Obama, I mean, uh, Joe Biden, his daughter Ashley has a diary entry in which she says that her father, Joe Biden, showered inappropriately with her, inappropriately with her as a young girl. Wow, alarm bells should be going off. And all this just gets ignored. All this just gets ignored, swept under the rug. Anyway, I'll share this article on my Substack for you to read. But I just want to make it clear again that Obama is running the Democrat Party still. I haven't talked about this in a while. But he's still still spending his time at the big brick mansion in D.C. We know there are reports that he meets routinely there with top figures in the current White House, which are coincidentally people that served in his White House. And that's the reality, too. I mean, the majority of the staff in the Biden administration are former Obama staff members. And yet not a single journalist, it's amazing, is staking out the Obama House, observing, reporting who's coming and going. And and what's remarkable about the upshot of all this is that it's unconstitutional. The unconstitutionality of all this, a true shadow government, Obama can't serve again. He wasn't elected president, and yet he is running the White House. Shocking. And Obama's greatest legacy, remember this, because he he doesn't have any successes. He will be recorded by historians as one of the worst presidents. Joe Biden will be the worst, and he'll be the second worst, but he didn't achieve anything. He achieved nothing. His achievements were detrimental in the end. He ruined health care. He made it worse. Syrian genocide and so on and so forth. Russia's invasion and annexation of Crimea the first time, and all that's under Obama. So Obama's great legacy is the establishment of what we have today, which is clear and undeniable, which is this American oligarchy and the deep state. And that's the moment under the Obama administration, as I was alluding to or saying to you, that it was truly cemented. It became organized and focused, and it merged with the Democrat Party. And that's what we have today. 
And Obama, by the way, of course, he doesn't have any close friends. He's an angry person. That's on the record. People know that. He's unfulfilled. He's selfish. He's egoistic. He's a very dark person. And he uses whatever talent he has to wreak havoc and devastation. He's a killer in many ways. Same personality traits. And, of course, another great irony is that Obama took this stance, right, against so-called imperialism only to establish what? Imperialism in America in the name of the Democrat Party and the deep state. All right, this is Duran. I'm going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on with the Ron DeSantis campaign. We're going to talk about this debate that's happening between Newsom and DeSantis. I am looking forward to that, to be honest with you. Uh, but we're going to talk about these things. Why is Vivek Ramaswamy, who no one ever heard of, why is he soaring in the polls? And why is DeSantis tanking? We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. So I want to get into this uh, DeSantis campaign. It is sinking like the Titanic. And I'll explain to you exactly why, what's going on. I mean, you have Vivek Ramaswamy, who no one had ever heard of, for the most part. He was an unknown on the scene until he declared his candidacy for the GOP 2024 presidential nomination. And this unknown individual, with even, honestly, some questionable aspects to his background, well, he is soaring in the polls and DeSantis is is tanking and it's it, it I mean it would have been unthinkable you know many 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 months ago when when these individuals first started announcing and I, I I'll just tell you this right now DeSantis approached this entire campaign this endeavor with the wrong attitude to begin with and you will see a stark contrast between what he's doing, his attitude, and Vivek Ramaswamy. And it's easy and clear as day to see why this is shaking out the way it is with Vivek ascending and Ron just plummeting. So DeSantis had this sense of entitlement from the beginning, as as if he was the self-appointed heir apparent. And it was an attitude... And the strategy that followed with that, really, that's what's doomed his campaign. Now, look, I'll say again, I did not expect this. I did not anticipate this. And I'm talking about DeSantis' self-destruction. I fully expected him to give, at least, to give Trump a run for his money to be competitive. And he's not. That's objective. That's not my opinion. That's fact. Not by any stretch of the imagination is he competitive. But I thought he would have been. But I didn't think he would make mistake after mistake. And I didn't think he would surround himself with the, frankly, stupid people that he has. And you can say whatever you want about Trump attacking him and so on and so forth. But the number of people whose opinions have been changed, were changed, who actually switched from Trump to DeSantis is negligible. But the number of people, in contrast, who have abandoned DeSantis is substantial. It's just stunning. Personally, I think it was a mistake for DeSantis to run. Actually, I know it was, because we're seeing it right now. I think the odds of DeSantis stealing the nomination, or not stealing, even just resting it away by proving himself worthy from Trump, I think those odds were always slim, but it was... 
It was a horrendous political calculation. Because what DeSantis has done is he has alienated himself not only from Trump, who supported him in the past, but from Trump's loyal supporters. And those are the very supporters that he needs to pick off if he wants to get the nomination. And so the strategy was always doomed because if you're trying to outdo Trump, you're going to have to take Trump's support. And you're not going to get and win Trump's support and take it away from Trump by attacking Trump and therefore his supporters. And it doesn't really matter if you think or I think or anyone thinks uh, what we think about should he run or should he not run. The reality is it's affected him in a devastating way. You know, that's a subjective opinion, whether you think he should have run or shouldn't have run. What I'm saying is that objectively, DeSantis went from being a leader, a rising star in the Republican Party, somebody that I actually, I viewed him that way. I did. But he went from being that to being someone whose entire political future is now in jeopardy. In in fact, it's on life support right now. There are a lot of optics to this. I mean, a lot of Floridians, they felt betrayed. Uh, You know, there there have been some issues in Florida. Some aren't his fault, but you're still talking about politics and you're going to take the brunt. You know, you've got uh, like the same situation in California I have right now, right? Because of recent wildfires, it's very costly and unaffordable to get fire insurance for your home. Absolutely insane. I mean, when my wife and I bought our home here in the Napa Valley, where obviously you've seen in the news over the past few years, the fires here, you know, we we were looking at this just exorbitant, you know, uh, way of getting insurance that was going to cost like I won't tell you how much, so much. We were able to figure it out in the end and, you know, by adding on fire insurance separately through this California fair plan or whatever it's called. But anyway, it's a problem. And it's very serious if, you, if you're a homeowner. And Florida's had, had that happen there with hurricanes. They have a huge problem with insurance. People can't get insurance. So, But that's something that he's the, go- he's the governor. He's not addressing that stuff. And, and it's just a, a fact. I, look, I'm not saying this to attack him. This would happen if you're the governor anywhere and you start to run, but it takes you away from your duties as the governor and leader of that state. It just does. It's a matter of fact. You've got so many time, so much time, so many hours in the day. So if you're running a presidential campaign, you're not there to do your job. That, that's true. So that's one of the issues. But, you know, his surrogates have done him no favors either. They're delusional. They're not realistic. And you can back Ron DeSantis and want him to win, but denying reality isn't going to help you. It's not going to help you get out of the circumstances. It's not going to help you change the, the course of your, the trajectory of your campaign. And these surrogates have been lying about the campaign's state of affairs. Ron's biggest individual donor, I'll, I'll, here's a perfect example to explain. His biggest individual donor is this very wealthy individual named Robert Bigelow. Bigelow gave $20 million to a pro-DeSantis super PAC. This one's called Never Back Down, the Never Back Down PAC. And so, you know, he's a business guy, he's pragmatic, and he's got no return on his investment. In fact, the worst return on investment is the DeSantis campaign. The best return on investment is the Vivek Ramaswamy campaign. No doubt about that. And DeSantis is tanking. Bigelow, Robert Bigelow, sees that he's tanking. 
He believes this is true, obviously, because he's come out now and said, no more money. My, my checkbook is closed. And here's the other thing. The people funding Ron DeSantis' campaign are rhinos. That's just a fact. Bigelow is one of them. What is Bigelow demanding happen in order for him to keep writing checks? He wants DeSantis to tone it down. For example, he wants him to tone down his conservatism to appeal to moderates. And what are moderates, really? Moderates are Democrats and other left-leaning people. This guy, Bigelow, wants DeSantis to be Mitt Romney, a loser. He said he has a problem with DeSantis signing the six-week abortion ban law. These rich donors, look, money doesn't equal political intelligence, or other forms of intelligence either, obviously. And these rich donors aren't particularly politically intelligent. They've just got a lot of money, a lot of ego-driven. You know, they, you know, I mean, they're betting. They're betting. They're gambling. And this is a prime example of that. But this guy, Bigelow, controls the purse springs, and this is problematic in itself. So DeSantis has to abandon principle because his campaign depends upon it. Do you see Trump trying to appeal to moderates, by the way? No. And he's only growing in popularity. Yeah, there's other factors involved, like this historic persecution, third world banana republic treatment of the leading GOP presidential contender, trying to put him in jail by you know Joe Biden and the opposing political party trying to jail him to interfere in the election and rig it. But DeSantis, he's surrounded by idiots. He's been surrounded by idiots since day one. And the contrast with Trump is Trump... You know, the people, who, the, the people who want or would like to control Trump can't. He's not controllable. And these people are backing DeSantis, who they can control. And this is what always, uh, this is one of the things that makes and has always made Trump so attractive, in my opinion, and effective. He's a billionaire. So Bigelow, the biggest individual donor to DeSantis, is telling DeSantis to appeal to moderates, left-leaning people. But what's Ron's problem? Ron's problem isn't that moderates aren't supporting him. It's that he can't get support and he's losing support from Republicans and conservatives. He can't win the nomination. Much less be elected president. You've got to win the nomination first. And so I, I got to tell you, I mean, Ron DeSantis, he's not going to make it much further. He sabotaged himself. Like I said, you know, I haven't seen anything like this since... Well, you know, the Romneys or certainly the McCains. It's just like, it's stunning. And, and, and this is objectively one of the worst campaigns ever put together. I've, it, 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 well, in modern history, certainly. Uh, there's like a mix of no strategy and bad strategies. And he should have been ascendant. I'm serious. And it's just remarkable to watch this implosion. And Vivek, Rama, Vivek Ramaswamy is ascendant. Why? Why? Well, one, you know, DeSantis was great for Florida. I cheered him, certainly. He was saying a lot of the right things, but he's not particularly charismatic. Vivek Ramaswamy is charismatic. He's a really, he's a political talent. DeSantis isn't really a political talent. And, you know, DeSantis is a guy who followed a course that we're all too familiar with. I mean, he's pursued a career in politics. And, you know, when you look at Trump, who's a once-in-a-generation talent, 
you know, who, who didn't come from politics. I mean, that was part of his selling point. People still like that. People are still attracted to that. And DeSantis is the opposite. I mean, he, he, it's like somebody who wants to be a doctor. There's a path. You know, you get good grades in high school. You get a good SAT score. You go to a decent university. You make sure you've, you know, uh, make good grades. You're summa cum laude or something like that. So you get into a great medical school. And then from medical school, you, you go on to become a doctor. And so the, the path in politics is, you know, you go to an elitist university. You get a law degree, perhaps. Maybe you join the military for a few years, so you check that off the resume builder. Everyone likes somebody who served in the military is patriotic. And then you leave the military and you get into politics. That's what DeSantis did. Went to Harvard, got a law degree, joined the Navy, served for five years, got out of the Navy. Pretty much immediately ran for Congress, won a seat. And then when Rubio ran in 2016 for the Senate, well, briefly, I was out for the Senate when Rubio was a senator. When Rubio decided to put his hat in the ring for president in 2016, Ron DeSantis announced he was running for that to run to, to, to take that Senate seat. And he was backed by the Rhino Cook brothers, Koch brothers. And then DeSantis announced, withdrew his, his, you know, bid for the Senate when Rubio dropped out of the presidential race. But then in, what, 17 or 18, I think it was 18, as soon as an opportunity showed itself for running for governor in Florida, well, DeSantis did what? He, like, abruptly abandoned Congress. He resigned so he could run for governor, become governor. So, you know, he's, 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 he's climbing the political ladder. So he's always had his eye set on the presidency. And the problem is his ambition or his wife, Casey, who is the, is the real ambition behind the man, perhaps. Some have speculated that, of course. I think there's some truth to it. Well, he got ahead of himself. He got ahead of himself. He could have waited. And look, his situation is different than Vivek Ramaswamy and these other people. He had a different relationship with Trump. Trump helped him. They have a history together, and there was a betrayal there, and I'm not passing judgment right now. I mean, I could, but that's not my point. I'm just telling you how this happened and how he's ruined his political career right now, and the biggest problems, you see, Vivek Ramaswamy, the reason he's growing in the polls, not just because he's everywhere all the time, and he's articulate, and he says things that are very conservative that we believe and agree with. But more important with Vivek, he's been on the right side in terms of defending Trump throughout all this. Vivek has had Trump's back. Vivek doesn't have a problem, even though he's running against Trump. Just like all these contenders, it benefits them if Trump goes to prison and isn't allowed, for example, to run, because then they have, we have to pick somebody else. And so there's a selfishness associated with those we view and see who let their egos and their ambition get in the way of doing the right thing. And you can hate Trump. Absolutely. You can want Trump never to be president again. And out of, you know, morality, out of, out of a belief in, in justice and, and in doing the right thing, you can still defend Trump against what's happening here. You can still call it out for what it is. And DeSantis won't do that. But Ramaswamy will. Ramaswamy comes out, says, yeah, he jumps in the ring. I would pardon Trump. This shouldn't be happening to Trump. This is wrong. 
But what does DeSantis do instead? He's quiet. You know, you know you have a problem when a liberal Democrat offers a greater defense of Trump than a Republican. I'm talking about the constitutional lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, who was a Democrat, who continues to defend Trump and talk about how, how dangerous this is. And DeSantis won't do it. DeSantis won't do it. I, I'll give you a perfect example. I mean, j- here we go again. Another misstep. He's changing his tune on January 6th. He sounds like the opposition. I'm talking about DeSantis. And this is what's going to end his political career. Ron now says that theories about the 2020 election being stolen are unsubstantiated. He's piling on. You see, he wants to see Trump brought down. And that is not emblematic of a man with integrity or good judgment or leadership capabilities. And DeSantis has been poisoned by the people around him. Be careful who you associate yourself with. And DeSantis has surrounded himself by losers. And he's been poisoned by it. Never Trumpers. So he needs Trump's face to come over to his side, and he's attacking Trump. So he's never going to win. He's never going to get ahead. What he should be doing is what Vivek Ramaswamy is doing, which is staying in his own lane, putting himself out there, letting people judge him based on what he says, what his positions are. And that's about it. And DeSantis is not doing it. I mean, it's, just, it's politics, folks. You just, it's a game and you have to play it correctly. And DeSantis is not playing this game well, obviously by the results. It doesn't matter if he hates Trump. It doesn't matter if there's ill will between the two. It doesn't matter what Trump says about him. I mean, I get it. I mean, Trump's a different animal. And, you know, I know Trump's hit him hard. Some of it is truthful, by the way. Not all of it, but some of it is. And for a while, I think that DeSantis actually was on to something when he was refusing to react and respond. He was taking the higher ground. Well, now he's not doing that. Now his own surrogates are lying about Trump's record. They're lying about DeSantis's record on COVID and whatnot, too. At the same time that, that Donald Trump was telling governors to open up their states, DeSantis slowly began doing that. You know, they, they, see, this is a lie. DeSantis was the governor of Florida, so he had the ability to do that. Trump as president didn't have the ability to force the governors to do anything. So all, all Trump could do was say, hey, the cure can't be worse than the disease. And very early on, Trump made it clear, and he was attacked for it, that people should be opening up their economies. And, and, and DeSantis is rewriting and revising history about what he did and so on and so forth. And he was good overall on COVID. And that's what gained him all this fame. This is what put him on our radar. He was pretty much nothing before that. And that was a strength for DeSantis. It was a good thing. But, you know, the problem for DeSantis is he doesn't have great political instincts, and so he's relying on these people who are pulling the strings. And if you don't have the sense of self and confidence like Trump has to just be you, you're going to come across as phony unless you're really good at lying, unless you're really, really good at pretending. If you're a sociopath and a pathological liar like Obama or Biden and you have a media protector, you can do it. But that's not the case on our side. And that's not who DeSantis is. He's not a pathological liar. 
And he has a life that he's lived that I think he can be proud of, so he doesn't need to do that. So that's not in his wheelhouse to be something he's not. And right now, we don't really know who DeSantis is. There's a lack of authenticity coming through. But one thing we do know is that he's failing in terms of using his platform right now to defend and push back on the greatest threat to America in our lifetimes and one of the greatest threats in our history. What we're living through right now with this political persecution is akin to the American Revolution and akin to the Civil War. It's that serious. It's that serious. So it's a unique time and people need to be able to push back on that. And DeSantis won't do it. I mean, I cannot believe what he went out and said about theories about the 20... I mean, he sounds like Bill Barr. Bill Barr who says, well, I'd still vote for Trump. But meanwhile, Bill Barr is doing everything he can to give credibility to this false, complete, this witch hunt against Trump, the latest one, at least, with regards to, you know, the Democrats trying to criminalize political free speech. Not a single crime was committed, but you have Bill Barr going out there talking about how this is a slam dunk case in some ways. That Trump committed a crime, except he can't explain what the crime was because no crime was actually committed. So this is the problem. And we're not, I'm not going to forget this. People aren't going to forget this. They're going to remember this. And, you know, you're only as good as you are in the present in anything we do, unfortunately, for better or for worse. And right now, DeSantis' record in Florida throughout COVID is irrelevant at this point because everyone's focused on right now, this moment. And DeSantis is failing that test over and over again. So if I was advising DeSantis, I would tell him he needs to come out and he needs to put his grudge aside, at least publicly, and he needs to declare his support for Trump. I mean, what these guys really should do, like a DeSantis, is drop out. I mean... I'll tell you what DeSantis could do right now that would actually put him back in the running for president in 2028. The guy's only 44. Just wait four years. He could back Trump right now and urge his donors to support Trump and the legal fees and everything going on there. That's what he could do. An act of selflessness, an act that shows healing and camaraderie, that shows support for America and the cause— that would go a long way and everyone would forgive him, but he's not going to do that. He's going to continue to stay in there as long as he can. But ultimately, he's going to have to probably drop out if this keeps on this trajectory and he won't recover from that humiliation. He'll go down as a guy who ran a terrible campaign. And if you can't run a successful campaign now, you're not going to get another chance. This isn't like Reagan running and not getting the nomination. I mean, it wasn't a failed thing. It's like Vivek Ramaswamy. He's not going to win the nomination. But he'll be remembered down the road for the next thing because he ran such a brilliant campaign. So this election, if your name is not Donald Trump, this camp- your campaign, it's not about becoming president in 2024. It's about growing. It's about using this as an opportunity and experience to prepare yourself down the road for other opportunities or the presidency in the future after Trump actually is out of the picture. It's about building a reputation in America It's about becoming someone to people. But they're sidekicks. And DeSantis doesn't have the humility to recognize that right now, and unfortunately many of his supporters don't. Certainly his team of people and his surrogates don't get that. They're denying reality right now, and they're turning into never-Trumpers. They're in disbelief that this is happening. They're unable to put the blame correctly on the DeSantis campaign itself. 
They're incapable of having the conversation that we're having right now. And they're fools for it. They're fools for it. So these people are actually doing a disservice to Ron DeSantis. The Steve Deese is out there. I'm sorry, I've got to call him out by name. The John Cardillo. Uh, you know, these clowns out there. Uh, they're ruining their own reputations as well. They're alienating themselves. And they're not doing DeSantis a service because, you know, these people are using this moment. They've carved out a niche for themselves. There are, you know, diehard DeSantis supporters. So they're attracting that. Their audiences are growing in some way and they're benefiting personally. But DeSantis is not benefiting from this. And as someone who genuinely would like DeSantis to have a future because I want to win and we need more than just Trump to win. We need a lot of people to rise up and assume these offices and run for office to save the country, to convince people of the Marxism that's eating us, that is the Democrat Party, I want him to succeed. I want him to succeed. And the way to success is not to try to appeal to moderates. It's not to go after Trump, especially not right now. It's not to be, to to throw in with the left and add fuel to the fires that is this witch hunt against Trump, it's not to do any of that. It's to walk a tightrope, to put out your own solutions, to talk to the American people just like he did throughout COVID while simultaneously supporting Trump. You can do both things. And that would save him. But like I said, I don't think that's going to happen. All right, this is Jerrellen. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Get, get rest, get rest. Turn off all the media, apart from this show. Enjoy this show. This is a good one. Uh, God bless you all, and until next time.